0: You don't have to disown the world, you don't have to disengage from the world in order to be godly. That's a childish, immature godliness. But once you internalize godliness, then you can be a godly soldier, you can be a godly farmer, you can be a godly human being.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. Well we had a fantastic um, sort of reception to the interview we did with Rabbi Manus Friedman just a few weeks ago so I'm delighted to say that we've got him back on the show to discuss some more topics and hopefully can experience some paradigm shifts in other areas of Judaism that I felt I personally experienced in such an enormous way on the previous interview that we did with him. So Rabbi Manus Friedman thank you so much again for making the time to be with us here on JTV Um, and if you're up for it, let's just dive straight into some, uh, some questions. So the, the first thing that I wanted to, well, the thing that I wanted to do today was to talk about some of the big themes and stories that occur in the Torah, the five books of Moses, and talk about some of the misconceptions that people have about them, because I really think they, they, they can do so much damage um, and in some ways can be a real Chil HaShem, where people misinterpret the kind of God who we believe God to be. Um, it's one, you know. I think there's a lot of a God of greatness and fear and punishment, and, and it's, it's not that difficult to get that impression when you read the Torah, but you don't believe that's the way we should be reading it. So there are a few different things that I wanted to talk about, and perhaps I don't mind if you want to take the lead in terms of um, sort of breaking, breaking down some of the, the stories, but two that immediately come to mind for me is number one the story of the flood which seems like a great example of divine punishment and wrath and fury um, and another sort of head-scratching one is the story of the spies um, where we see the Jews somehow they've had all these miracles uh, and yet they're somehow suspicious of what God's going to do when he takes them, into, takes them into the land of Israel so those were two ones that sort of came to me sort of immediately but. Happy to sort of throw the ball into your court and let you, let you take it from here, and I'll jump in every so often with some questions.
0: That is, that is really, really fundamental and, and crucial issues. Because how we approach the Torah, and what tone of voice we give the Torah, will make all the difference in the world. So let's start off with an interesting um, Observation. A philosopher asked one of the sages, <clears throat> how can you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Don't you see how illogical that is? Because all the people who are alive and healthy and vigorous, strong, they're all going to die. So don't you see the direction of, of, of reality is from life to death? Even those who are alive are going to die. So how do you believe that those who are dead are going to live? <laughs> if the alive can't stay alive, death must be really powerful. So how do you think, how do you believe, how can you even imagine that the dead will come alive. The sage's answer was very relevant and, and important for all time. He basically said, you assume life and then you observe what happens. You're right. There is life and life ends in death but you're not starting at the beginning. Before there was life, there was nothing. And God said, let there be, and then there was. So out of nothing comes life. And then life ends in death. But life came out of nothing. So if God can create life out of nothing from that which does not exist, then why wouldn't God be able to create a life that already did exist? So the bigger miracle is not life and death. The big miracle is something out of nothing. So start at the beginning. First, there was nothing, and God created life. So to bring a life back after it already had one life is child's play compared to to creating something out of nothing. We have to bear that in mind. All of existence, all of creation, comes from nothing. So it must have a very important purpose, a very important objective to bring everything out of nothing So when we read the Torah, we can't just assume life and then the end of life is death. That's a short-sighted view. We have to take the long view. God who created everything out of nothing, why was he bringing a flood? So again, we can be short-sighted. Oh, people were bad. God got angry, so he punished them and killed them. And that's it. That's the extent of your vision. Torah is a Torah of kindness and a Torah of life. Wherever there seems to be a lack of kindness on God's part or a lack of life, you have to rethink it. Torah is all about kindness and life. So let's use the flood as an example. The impression we get from the Torah, superficially, is that God is always angry, he's always judging us, and we're never good enough. And as a vengeful punishment, God kills people he smites them down with lightning bolts and all sorts of stuff. That, that's absurd. Let's look at it a little differently. This is God's world, God's creation. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. We are guests. We are invited into this world that God created. Now imagine you have guests in your house and they won't abide by any of your rules. They're selling your furniture. They're repainting the house. They're taking out a mortgage on your house. (laughs) How long would you tolerate that? Now, Of the six hundred and thirteen commandments, which are God's conditions for living in his world. Of all of them, how many are punishable by death?
1: Is it maybe a handful? Three, four, five?
0: Which means out of six hundred and thirteen commandments, six hundred and thirteen needs that God has for his world, his kitchen, You can violate 570-something, whatever. You can violate his will 500 times, and you're still welcome in his kitchen. I mean, if you cross the red line, okay, then you're not welcome anymore. So what does a death penalty mean? It means you're not welcome anymore. You got to leave only for a handful of things? That's pretty tolerant. So let's keep things in perspective. The flood, nobody was doing any good. The Torah hadn't been given yet. So nobody was doing mitzvahs, but people were doing a lot of evil. Primarily against each other. Everyone? It seems like, yes. It was lawless. There was no, there were no laws. So people were being destructive of life on earth. Self-destructive. So God said, this, this can't be fixed. So we'll start all over again all the experimentation, the world was new, human beings were new, they were experimenting with the worst kind of, of lawlessness. So really what happened was this. In their freedom of choice, the human beings corrupted themselves terribly intolerably. So God said, the world has been blemished, the world has been sullied, and we need to start all over. But we need to start off clean. So the flood was actually bringing the world to a mikvah. And that's why the water had to cover the top of the mountains, because when you go to a mikvah, even your hair has to be submerged, you have to be completely submerged, so that you're returning to your primordial condition, and then you're cleansed. So ultimately, the the waters of the flood were like the waters of a mikvah, and the earth was cleansed and purified so that it can start all over again in That tells us what death means. Death means, let's stop what's going on, let's clean everything up, and start all over again. So the same souls that were populating the world in the time of the flood, they left the world, got cleansed, and then came back post-flood. And then their lives were much more orderly. So the popular question that most people at least think about, did God not know that the first 10 generations are going to be miserable, bad, confused? And if he knew, why was he punishing them?
1: And if he's not a punisher, or if if, if we're misreading it, why does he use such language in the Torah?
0: That's why we need to translate words correctly. Like, The time has come to end all life on earth. But look at the words. Kate's cold the flesh has been corrupted, not the souls. So those same souls can be redeemed, and they can do well, but they need to start all over again. So what ended was not life. What ended was the flesh, the ugliness of it. That needed to be cleansed and purified, and then they could start again. What happened by the flood? The world had been overwhelmed with generosity and kindness. And that's why people lived to be 900 years old. Animals grew to be 20 feet tall. It was overmuch, Too much. After the flood, God said, from now on, Their lifespan will be 120. Quite a change. Animals will not grow to be 20 feet tall. Vegetables will not be huge. So the world kind of settled down into what we now know is the norm. To live beyond 120 is an exception. To get to be ten feet tall, an exception, rare. Since the since the flood, so although the flood seems like a totally destructive thing, it turns out that there was a very positive side to it. It was cleansing, it was forgiving, and it was settling into a more realistic and a more doable life form we became normal after the chaos of the experimenting of the first generations who didn't really know what life was about and that's a necessary progression like every child the life is chaotic they're out of control They can produce no good, but they can be very destructive. Do you ever see a child empty a bookcase of all its books? Very common. Do you ever see a child put books back into a bookcase? Never. (laughs) Because they're going through their chaos stage, which is a necessary part of growing up. You have to start off with crazy enthusiasm That you cannot control and then settle all of that energy into a productive pattern That's how God created the world first. There was darkness. Then there was day First there was chaos. Then there was order So once the Torah was given That's when the orderly universe really began. Instructions, a user's manual, which didn't exist before. And so there was a lot of abuse of life, of the universe, of nature. Torah gave us the plan, the structured world. So we can forgive people who existed before the giving of the Torah, because without the instructions, you know, what do you expect? And that's why Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the people who had a structured life, a disciplined life, a purposeful life, they were they were amazing. They were amazing. In a time of chaos, they saw some purpose, direction, productive behavior, but it didn't really become available to the average person until the Torah was given. Now, every human being can be the most productive, the most creative, without any chaos at all. So the end story is, even the flood benefited life, benefited even the souls whose lives were taken temporarily, so that they could come back in a more orderly and a more structured fashion. (music) The Spies, again, an incredible story. And as you pointed out, it needs commentary. How can people who see the 10 plagues, who cross the ocean on dry land, who hear God speak from the top of the mountain, food falls from heaven, wh- wh- what do you mean they all of a sudden didn't believe in God? What, what, what? that doesn't make any sense whatsoever.
1: Well, didn't trust him. Right. That doesn't
0: make sense. Right. So here's the rest of the story. There was no question. The spies trusted God to perform miracles endlessly. And no miracle is too difficult. What happened was Moshe says to the people we are about to enter the promised land we need to send spies and these really good holy people in a sense they said to Moshe why do we need spies let's just go we'll do it miracles will happen what's the problem All of a sudden, we need spies. We're not doing anything. God is doing it all. Let God do it. We just got to go. So let's go, and God will give us the land miraculously. And Moshe said, no. Coming into the land means we have to take responsibility. The age of miracles is over. We got to go into the land, we have to settle the land, we have to become farmers, we have to become soldiers, we got to become a people with a land. And that does not happen miraculously. That you need to do. The spies then said, wait, wait, if it's not going to be miraculous, then we can't do it. We can trust God to do it, like he's done everything else we're going to do it, I don't think we can do it, so let's not go. let's stay here and continue to rely on god's miracles. That was their mistake
1: but did they think that was what God wanted that for them to resist yes it's like don't' like, like a loving couple saying like they don't they don't want to let go before they have to. You know, he has to go out to war or something.
0: Yes. Like children, they felt, no, no, let's stay with daddy and daddy will take care of us. But daddy wanted them to grow up and become independent and take some responsibility. And they said, we're not ready for that. And they were right. They were not ready. The next generation, they were ready. So the generation that left Egypt were really not ready, and so they continued to live a spiritual life for the 40 years in the desert until they all passed away. Their children were a little more down to earth, and they were ready to go into, uh, into the land. That's what the spies actually said. Right. They said, the land eats up its inhabitants which means if we go into Israel and try to depend on our own ability, it's going to eat us up. We'll have no time for God. We'll have no time for for holiness. We'll have no time for, for spirituality. We will be consumed, eaten up by the daily responsibilities, and we will become like everybody else. The two good guys, they said a piece of cake the bad guys said it will eat us up the good guys
1: said, no 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 it's a piece of cake <laughs> you've given new meaning to that phrase I, I said you've given new, new meaning to that phrase
0: <laughs> they are our bread they will, nur- they will nurture us. They won't destroy us. Going into the land from a spiritual perspective, going from the desert into the land was like going from faith to service. Faith is a wonderful thing, but it's not enough. You take the faith, and you use it to serve God. Going into the land means you're going to focus on the serving, not on the faith. Or in different words. In the beginning... The, the Jewish people who came out of Egypt were overwhelmed by holiness. Overwhelmed. They didn't know what hit them. All of a sudden, they're not slaves. All of a sudden, the water parts in their honor. All of a sudden, God is speaking to them. It was overwhelming. So it's natural and, and predictable that they didn't know what to make of this. So their faith was a faith of hopeless, of helplessness. I don't know what's going on. You better just trust God. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we are helpless. God will do everything. Right. Which, by the way, is very prevalent to religious doctrine today.
0: It's part of the corruption of religion.
1: It's like total surrender, total surrender.
0: It was an immature relationship with God. We were babies and he was mommy and daddy, which is beautiful in its innocence. God says, I will never forget your innocence. You followed me into the desert like innocent babes. It was beautiful. But then, it's time to grow up, take responsibility, become partners in the family business. Can't remain babies forever. So there's a difference between a faith that cancels you and takes over completely, versus a faith that you internalize. It's your identity now. That's the difference between what you can digest versus what you can't digest. So, when the two spies, when Kalev and Yeshua said, No, no, we can eat this, what they meant was we can internalize godliness. We're not babies anymore.
1: And what does internalizing godliness mean? What does, that, what does that mean practically?
0: It means make it your project. Make it yours. Godliness and the perfecting of the world and bringing God into the world, that's your thing now. It's not God doing it and you just go along with the, for the ride. So internalizing godliness... Makes it possible to be soldiers and farmers and workers and still be godly. You don't have to disown the world, you don't have to disengage from the world in order to be godly. That's a childish, immature godliness. But once you internalize godliness, then you can be a godly soldier, you can be a godly farmer, you can be a godly human being. You don't have to wander in a desert and have God feed you with food from heaven. So there's the difference. In the desert, God brought food from heaven. Once they enter the land, they're going to have to bring food out of the earth they didn't think they could handle that and they were right they were not ready to internalize godliness they were simply overwhelmed by it the second generation they were able to see themselves embodying personal godliness in every in every way in every role that they're going to play whatever they're going to be doing it's all going to be imbued with godliness because they can digest godliness they can internalize it so it wasn't that they didn't think God could perform miracles that would be be ridiculous oh this miracle nah this even God can't do they were not foolish people They were very responsible people. And they came back and they said, living in a land on your own strength, we can't do it. We don't have enough of Torah. We don't have enough absorbed godliness to be able to make it work. So the children took over and they
1: became the uh, people of the land. So it wasn't a punishment. So it wasn't a punishment, so to speak. And, and But we also talk about Tisha B'Av, you know, being that, that, that this call, this was the first Tisha B'Av. You know, it sounds like this was a great source of sadness. I mean, it is. But, but it sounds like it's just, um, they weren't ready. Okay, why is that so terrible?
0: And what is Tisha B'Av? What is the destruction of a temple? On a much more sophisticated level, living in Israel with a temple, with a Beit HaMikdash, with prophets running around speaking in God's voice, that became a little bit like the desert. Godliness became too easy. To available. Could you be a Jew if you didn't have a temple? Could you serve God without prophets reminding you every day? Could you go to a land that is not a holy land and be holy there? That was the next challenge. So the similarity between the desert and and, and Israel, was that it was still too easy. It was still godliness coming from heaven, from the temple, from the prophet, from the holiness of the land. So yes, it was a big advancement, but it still had that flavor. Godliness was limited. It could exist only in the Holy Land. Outside the Holy Land, there would be no godliness. Galut would eat us up. And it would be the end of godliness. So God said, no, there is no end to godliness. So I'm going to take away the temple. I'm going to scatter you all over the world. And you're going to make the rest of the world a holy land. Wow. And it will not be the end. It will be the real, deep permanent godliness that is indestructible and independent of land, of temple, of prophets, just Jews and Torah.
1: Can I ask a funny question, but why did he feel the need to scatter us more to the west than the east?
0: (laughs) I guess the west is unholier, (laughs) more unholy.
1: Why? Why is that?
0: It's, it's the bottom part of the, of the world. It's the bottom half.
1: But, but the, the, East, the Eastern side, they, they seem to be... There seems to be much more um, of pe- people who are at... at like, they have pr- religious practices that make them at peace. But I don't know where God fits into that equation.
0: It's still easier to be religious in the East. Because that's where the Torah was given. That's where the Holy Land is. So it's not your own steam. You're carried, at least a little bit, by the holiness of the place. It can be be abused. You can turn it into a negative spirituality. But there's definitely a spirituality or a religiosity about the place, whereas the West, it's all new, bringing godliness to where it doesn't happen by itself, and that's a big accomplishment. So, in all of these instances, you know, we say in the in the davening, we say because of our sins we were exiled from the land. What sin? Why are we constantly bad-mouthing our ancestors? Well, it says that.
1: They sinned and they
0: got punished. They sinned and they got thrown out. They sinned and they... But
1: it says that. It says that in the davening.
0: I know. But how do we explain that? How do we constantly speak lush and horror about, about our ancestors? It wasn't me who wrote it. (laughs) So the word chet, which we translate as sin, is not correct. Avon is sin. Pesha is sin. Chet means imperfection. Incomplete. Mepnei chato'enu. It was because of our chet, That we were exiled. And that is, we were not complete. We were still relying on a godliness that is given to us, rather than the godliness that we ourselves can produce. So we were still a little immature, depending on the base amigdash, depending on the um, holiness of the environment. What would happen if you take away that environment? How real would godliness be? We needed to show that to the world, to ourselves. That without a temple, Judaism is not over. Without being in the Holy Land, we're still the Jewish people and the Torah is still real and true. In fact, it can turn an unholy land into a holy land. Which is how we bring Mashiach. So there's always the positive that is right there just beneath the surface. The negative is on the surface because we are negative. And so we immediately assume that God is being negative. He's always disappointed He's always angry, he's always looking for ways to punish and to... No, 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 not the case at all. God is amazed by what the, the, what his children have accomplished and will continue to accomplish. There is no disappointment ever, because that would mean that we're going backwards and we never go backwards. The world is always moving forward. Sometimes it's in a mysterious way. But we can't lose sight of that. The Torah is always helping to bring more kindness and more life. Not punishment and death. We got we to gotta remember that.
1: Would you say Moshiach, the concept of the Messiah coming, the the prophets talk about the knowledge of God will, you know, just be completely abundant. Um, I think it's something like, like the sea or something like that. And um, my question is, will that be the case? Because basically there won't be a difference between (laughs) miracle and nature. In other words, we will just see God everywhere. Is, is, that, is that a true, a right understanding?
0: Yeah. We will see nature as God's tool, not competition.
1: Right, right. And will it be his... If nature and God
0: are, are opposite ends and pulling in opposite directions. Nature pulls us down like gravity and God is trying to drag us up in some spiritual way.
1: And will we ever transcend nature? In other words, it sounds like you're saying God will communicate to us through nature. Will we ever transcend nature to have a higher form of communication with God?
0: You won't need a higher form. That's the beauty of it. We won't have to escape nature to get to a higher place. Nature will be the highest place. In other words, the essence of godliness will be in nature, not in heaven. Uh Earth will become holier than heaven. So if you want to find holiness, you will not climb the ladder to heaven. The souls in heaven will all come down the ladder to go back into their bodies, because the ultimate godliness will be here in the physical, in nature, I'm just... without the negative side of nature.
1: Um, the, 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 um, the last thing I'd like to talk to you about for our interview um, today is just going back to what you said in the first interview, which was such a big paradigm shift for me. Which was that you said, only a creator has needs. And it's so obvious to me now thinking about it, you know, why would God create a world in which we see that whenever you create something, you have a need for it? Therefore, it would be intuitive. He would surely make it intuitive that we could intuit that He too has a need in creating us. But um, my, a question I wanted to ask was. Is that true on the most fundamental, deepest level? You know, my question of who... You know, it's fascinating to start thinking of God actually being the vulnerable one and and dependent on our sort of responding to him, for him to become good and not just on his own. But is this just one sort of perspective of God, just as it's also a perspective that God doesn't have any needs? Um, Or is this no fundamental thing? Because there's also some people see so, you know i 've been throwing this around with and discussing it with some other people, and they do fear that this is it's, it's, it's potentially it could be dangerous in it being too one dimensional um, and they say at the deepest level we can't use any words to describe God. I think personally the language you 're using is the best way i 've found for myself at least of Relating to God and having relationship with him. It doesn't make sense to me how you can have a loving relationship if neither of you complete one another But I just wanted your thoughts on that on is it true at the deepest level? We can't use any language whatsoever to describe um, God
0: It's probably true that no matter what we say about God It's not the whole story That's probably true Because there's more we don't know than what we do know. But what we do know is important. The highest thing we know about God is His need. That is the highest, the most primordial. The reason for it is very simple. God created the world out of nothing. Nothing. So there was nothing there besides Him. And Him decided to create the world. And there was nothing to motivate Him. There was nothing, not even theory. So what are we left with? We're left with a God who just by himself, of himself, within himself, decided to create a world. It's not a need, it's his need, because that's all there was, was him. So whatever motivated God to create the world, is essential to him because there was nothing else to motivate him so what is it about him that could possibly motivate a creation his aloneness it's it's so obvious it's so logical and unavoidable. There was nothing else besides Him. So what about Him wants to create a world? You can't say kindness, love. Those things did not exist. There was just Him. Love came later. Kindness came later. Royalty, being the king of the world, that came later. Even being a creator came later. The only thing that existed in the beginning is that he was the only thing. Now, if that's not acceptable, you have a motivation for creation. So, what was not acceptable? His exclusivity.
1: So, it wasn't, it wasn't in some way that he was feeling um, in, in any way needy in a, in a sense that would diminish his uh, self-sustain. In other words, would he be able to be just fine without us? He's not good without us. He was already
0: eternal. (laughs) So he couldn't get older, he couldn't get bigger, he couldn't get stronger, he couldn't get smarter. The only thing he could get was smaller, to not be the only one. god's humility or vulnerability
1: i have to tell you when i when i discussed your interview with someone to uh someone that actually teaches me they said hold on what you're saying is true and by the way we know it's true that whoever wants the relationship more is the one that's more vulnerable but when i was asking these questions to him you know what does it mean to serve god you know this idea that God needs us. He said, hold on, but that would then bring God down to my level. I thought, <laughs> yeah.
0: Thus making him lovable.
1: But the point is he did contract himself and therefore it's, it's a, is it not in some way fake. And that's the point that we can't ultimately know him because... It's, he doesn't, he doesn't, like we said, it's, he's done this in some way for, for us, for, I don't know, for him, I, it gets into tricky, tricky territory.
0: Yeah, it, it's a good, it's a good question. Parents who say to their children, you decide you're old enough, make your own decisions. Is that fake? Are they really sincere about that? Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> Wouldn't they rather control their children's lives? Come on. hope not. There is a danger there. In human beings, there is the danger that as much as they say they want you to be independent, they only want you to be independent the way they want you to be independent. <laughs> You know, you can marry anyone you want except that one. So they're still controlling, right? Now, when God gives us independence, it's real. And he suffers from it. It's real.
1: But at, again, at the highest level... Do we? You're saying the 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 greatest thing we know about God is that there is a need for our, our existence. Will that always be the highest thing we know? And is there something above that, even that, that we don't know?
0: If we don't know, then we can't talk about it.
1: Yes, but isn't that what Ain Sof is—the concept of Ain Sof? And some, on some, in some respect, we just won't know. Don't know him.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't mean that God is a blank. Don't turn him into a nothingness. There is more to know. Someday we will know. But don't turn him into the ultimate mystery. That's not the God of Israel.
1: But will will there always be more to know? In a good sense. Right.
0: But there will always be more to his need because that's infinite. So he needs us infinitely. So we will continue to find more and more depth to that need. You know, we thought we knew what need meant. Oh, we're going to find out what it really
1: means. You know, something I actually thought of recently was that isn't it interesting how at the beginning of Jewish history, we, are so, we become slaves where we, we are completely, um, you know, uh, subject to and dominated by uh, the Egyptian uh, Empire and we completely subject ourselves. And at the end of history, we and then that's how we start as a people that know how to serve. But in some ways, as you said earlier, are babies. And at the end of history, we're people, we don't want, we don't, we're not interested in, what, in any authority, but we're also the most needy generation of all. And what I feel will happen when the Messiah comes, when the messianic era, I don't really like to talk about the Messiah, it's, the mess, it's like in the perfect world, is that I think what will happen is all the neediness that we felt, all that sensitivity that we have been feeling for ourselves, it's like, it will help us to throw that back to God and do it not out of a, uh, you know, it's my, you're my master, but out of a, you're my, you're my spouse almost. And it will be incredible.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly right. The healthiest form of vulnerability It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. It really is, and uh, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time, for your insight, uh, your your um, or- original and unique insight. Um, although perhaps you might uh, contest the word original. Um, But um, it's certainly new things, new to me, at least, some of the things you've been saying. Um, I really appreciate your time and I hope we can continue to have many more conversations, which I know I and so many of our viewers are gaining so much from.
0: Let's do it again.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can buy more podcasts on JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manis Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Kiva Tatz, and many more. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Oli Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel.